Good evening, everyone. In the last few episodes, we've been discussing a lot of advancements in terms of understanding how diseases work. It's finally time to see the practical applications of all that hard work, which we'll illustrate today with some examples. Let's start in New York City, where the new understanding of bacteria was really put into practice first. Back in 1892, a small laboratory was established in the city health department in response to a cholera epidemic. William H. Park, a young physician, was able to make his mark there with his work on diphtheria. Park got started when he was recruited to the city health department because of some research he did on diphtheria specifically. Originally, his professor didn't believe that the relevant bacteria was responsible for the disease. Park did, and in their argument, they decided that only a clinical laboratory study could settle it. Which is pretty ridiculous, but admittedly my kind of argument. His professor provided the lab and the funding, and Park put in the actual time needed to conduct the research. And Park turned out to be right. His research suited him perfectly to the new position at the New York City Health Department, and he got to work trying to reduce diphtheria in the city, which was out of control. One of the first priorities was to isolate a strain of the diphtheria bacteria. Park worked with a woman named Anna Wessels Williams, who early on in her first year of work was able to isolate a strain of the bacteria to be used for future work, which was named the Park-Williams strain in their honor. She actually made the discovery while Park was away on vacation, so maybe it should have been called the Williams-Park strain instead. But she was a firm believer in the collaborative nature of science, and was even quoted saying in her old age, quote, I am happy to have the honor of having my name thus associated with Dr. Park. She was brilliant and humble, just a great person all around, and I hope she'll make another appearance on this show at a later time. This strain was vital in developing antitoxin production techniques. You might remember the antitoxin for diphtheria was discovered over in Europe, but its mass production was not yet feasible. Through the work of Williams and Park, by autumn of that year, 1894, doctors in New York were receiving diphtheria antitoxin for free to fight the disease among the city's poor. I found statistics from Dr. Park himself, stating that on average before the introduction of the antitoxin, about 2,500 people died per year in New York from diphtheria. In the years immediately afterwards, that average dropped by almost half to 1,300 a year. He wasn't done yet, though, by any means. The Department of Health began also to immunize people for diphtheria. Even with a treatment, prevention is often much more effective, but conducting such widespread immunization was a challenge. Park realized that schoolchildren were especially at risk, and in 1921 he launched a massive project to enlist school administrators, school nurses, and parents to get their kids vaccinated. And if you've worked with any of those folks, you know that can be a bit rough. Yet, by 1928, 500,000 children had been vaccinated. At one point, they sent out 45,000 mailers across the state to tell parents where to get their kids immunized, written in English, Italian, and Yiddish. Just 12 years after the start of the vaccination campaign, the disease was no longer a significant cause of death, with the death rate of diphtheria dropping to 1 700th of what it was a few decades before. The massive successes of the New York City Health Department did not go unnoticed, and other places began to emulate their practices, and apply them to other diseases too. 
1894, Massachusetts created a similar lab, and the next year, Philadelphia followed suit. Within a few years, basically every state and large city in the United States had established a bacteriological lab in some form or another. The New York City Health Department alone conducted research on tuberculosis, dysentery, pneumonia, typhoid fever, scarlet fever, and even the safety of milk, making great strides and saving many thousands of lives in just a few decades. Diphtheria is just one example, but during this time period from the early to mid-1900s, many diseases became far less lethal, as humanity understood how they worked and how to truly effectively fight them for the first time. Let's look at typhoid fever, for example, which was discovered to be caused by a bacteria spread through infected food or water. New protected water supplies and improved sewage systems took care of the water side of the issue. Milk pasteurization and fly control helped reduce foodborne infections. New diagnostic tools also allowed for the detection of asymptomatic carriers and confirmed the diagnosis of ill patients, which enabled more effective isolation practices. While the military was often vaccinated against typhoid fever, most of the public was not, and yet the death rate from typhoid fever was 0.2 per 100,000 people in 1947, hundreds of times lower than it had been just a few decades prior. Many diseases which had been scourges of humanity for literally millennia began to fall. The effect on child mortality especially was incredibly important. In New York City back in 1885, about a fourth of all infants died. Think about how different life would be if a fourth of all the children you've ever known died as babies. Compare that to 2018 statistics, when only 0.5% of all infants in the U.S. died. And that's considered a rather high number among modern wealthy countries. Not all of that progress was made just in the first half of the 20th century, but a whole lot of it was, and it made such a difference that it actually changed the demographics of many countries. The much higher survival rates broadly meant that people were much more likely to live to old age, and the demographics of many modern states skew much older than they did a century ago. Modern life as we know it would simply not have been possible without much of the progress that was made in the early 1900s. That's it for this week. I'm not honestly sure what next week will be about yet, because I've got several ideas I'm still exploring and writing, but we will see. In the meantime, thank you for listening. If you've got comments, questions, or whatever, feel free to reach out with the links in the show notes. Thanks also go out to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music. <laughs>